If you're joining us for the very first time today, we uh, started a new sermon series last Sunday called The Revolutionary Life, Embracing Countercultural Living. And in this sermon series, we are going to be talking about what it means for us to actually fulfill the calling for which God has called the church to be. We're not a club, we're not an association, we're not a random collection of people gathered together to have meetings. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 15 and 16, Paul paints this picture for us when he says that what God has done by bringing together humanity is to create a new humanity, a new humanity, a counterculture, uh, uh, people who, whose lives are so radically different from the rest of the world that, that they would be accused of being an entire different species of people. That's powerful to me because that paints a picture for us as a reminder of what it is that we are called to be and do as a church. And maybe answer the question of why the church in America maybe isn't as effective as it can be. How different are we? How, how much of a counterculture are we from the rest of, of the world and society at large? Um, what does life look like within this community, within this city, within a city, an alternate city that worships Jesus Christ as King and Lord? And, and in this sermon series, we're going to be delving into specific issues like money, possessions, treasure, like sexuality and sex, like marriage, like singleness, like dating. Um, I have a title for our dating, I think, sermon. I'm going to call it Kissing Nonsense Goodbye, okay? <laughs> so for those of you that are familiar with the book, um, Kissing Nonsense Goodbye, it's going to be, as always, one of those kind of straightforward talks, okay? Because what I hear a lot about Christian women in our church are Christian guys, mm, not so much, and Christian guys say the same thing. And when you hear about why, it is absolutely ridiculous to me, absolutely ridiculous to me. It's a reminder that we're no different from the culture at large. So we're going to be talking about that. But as I said last week, I'm not going to tell you when I'm going to preach about that. Okay? So you're just going to have to guess and show up, I guess, or come to all of them. That's the point, right? Um, we're going to be delving specifically. But we begin this sermon series by talking about our, pro- our approach, our attitude about money, possessions, and things. Um, the early church was absolutely radical when it came to money, when it came to possessions. We have historical documents written by secular historians that describe the life of the early church when it came to money and possessions. And here's what you find. In AD 252, there was a plague that hit the city of Carthage. Hundreds of thousands of people died. Hundreds of thousands of people were left homeless because their loved ones, in order to save their rear ends, just took off. The bishop of Carthage at the time was Cyprian, gathered all the Christians in that city together to town square, and he essentially said, we're not going anywhere. We are going to stay in this city, and we are going to, by radically giving of ourselves and all the stuff that we have, care for those who are dying, care for those who will die, care for those who might die. And examples like this were so powerful that an emperor by the name of Julian, who wanted to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth, wrote to one of his contemporaries, their secret lies in their charity to all. Not only do they take care of their poor, but they take care of our poor as well. Does that describe us? Does that describe us? For those of you that are sitting there saying, I have no money, this is irrelevant for me. Those of you sitting there, I'm a student. For those of you that are saying that I'm good, sitting there saying I'm good with money, it's not an issue. For those of you that are saying maybe this is not really an issue. Let me put it this way: When I go see the doctor, Doctor Golden, Robert Golden, who is a phenomenal doctor, he sits down and he starts asking random questions like, "How's church? How's family? How's it being a new dad?" Are you exercising, so on and so forth? To which sometimes I want to look at him and go, you're a doctor. Stick to your physical diagnosis. Don't ask me about my personal life. And yet, being a good doctor, he knows that every part of my life is integrated. And that as scripture says, there are very few things that bring anxiety, worry, complexities to life like money, possessions, and treasures. So church... As we delve into this today, we start with this. In order for us to reshape the culture in which we live, materialistic, money, possessions, treasure, culture we live in, we have to come to recognize that what, here's this phrase that describes our culture today. We spend money we don't have, remember this, to buy things that we don't need, 
impress people that we don't even like. Okay, we spend money that we don't have to buy things that we don't need to impress people that we don't like. You know what that's gotten us? Let me show you what that mentality has gotten us. Came up with these statistics. Found these statistics online, www.creditcards.com. So it's actually, it's actually a website that wants you to get credit cards. And yet, here are simple, straightforward numbers, okay? And the whole point of this is shock and awe, okay? I will tell you up front, it is to shock and awe you into realizing what this mentality has gotten us into, okay? 90% of people in our culture buy things that they can't afford. That means that nine out of ten of us in here today buy things that we can't afford. Forty percent of American families spend more than they earn. This is from the Federal Reserve, actually. Forty percent of American families spend more than they earn. Third, approximately 51 million households carried consumer debt in 2005, which amounted to, you ready for this next slide, $2.2 trillion dollars. American consumer debt in the year 2005, 2.2, that's 12 zeros. I seriously had to look at other websites to go, that cannot be right. Sure enough, 2.2 trillion dollars. By the way, does anybody know what comes after trillion? I don't even know what comes after trillion. (laughs) Nobody counts that high. Where information is quadrillion, and then is quintillion, and then is sectillion, if you want to know. God help us. <laughs> Approximately 96% of Americans will have to retire financially dependent on the government, family, or charity, according to 2003 study. 96% Americans. Let's look at more uh, specifically credit card stats. Here it is. Ready? The credit card industry mailed over 6 billion credit card offers Six billion credit card offers in 2005. That's average of six per household. And by the way, if you pay your credit cards off monthly, you won't get offers. So if you're getting lots of offers, (laughs) yep, there were 1.3 billion credit cards in circulation. Out of 6 billion offers, 1.3 billion credit card circulation. The credit card industry took in $43 billion, 43, that's nine zeros, billion dollars just from late fees, late payment, over-the-limit payment, and balance transfer. I know this is making us, some of us, nervous. We have to go there, okay? Is that all right? Okay. Sears, Sears makes more money on their credit card finance charges than the sale of entire merchandise in all of their stores. Approximately 185 million people, that's 76% of American consumers, have at least one credit card. In 2004, students, I actually waited until maybe a couple, I should have waited a couple more because students, 83% of undergraduate college students had at least one credit card in their name with an average outstanding balance of over $2,300. 32% of those students had four or more credit cards. Graduate students, as of 2004, the average graduate student had six credit cards and one in seven owed more than $15,000 on their credit card. Just a few more. It's estimated on average 20% of Americans have maxed out their credit cards. How many of us have maxed out? Can you raise? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Wanted to see. Roughly 24%, the reason is, of personal expenditures in the United States are made using bank credit cards, retail cards, and debit cards. American households spend $412 billion in credit card charges, $412 billion. On average, the typical credit card purchase is 120% higher than if using cash. That means if you're at the store and use a credit card, if you bought something worth $50, eventually you wind up paying more than $100. You buy something that's $100, eventually with that credit card you wind up paying $200. People spend 20 to 30% more when using credit cards over cash. See, people are so smart. 
They know this. They know that you're going to spend more and buy more when you use your credit card. They furthermore know when you use your credit card that you wind up paying 112% more for it than if you were to use cash. These are some smart people. Americans pay on average 18.9% interest, interest rate on credit cards, 18.9%, and 60% of people don't pay off their credit cards every month. That means six out of ten of us have overlapping balance every month. An $8,000 debt at an average of 18% interest rate will take you over 25 years to pay off. 25 years. And eventually you'll wind up paying $24,000 for something that you paid $8,000 for. Handful more, and then we're done with this painful exercise. Bankruptcy is listed in the top five life-altering negative events. Bankruptcy, top five life-altering negative events a person can go through, along with divorce, severe illness, disability, and loss of a loved one. And get this, 1.3 million credit card holders declared bankruptcy in 2002. That's a lot of people going through very stressful lives. 19% of the people who filed for bankruptcy, 1.3 million, were college students. As of 2004, lastly, the number one cause of divorce is financial stress. Can we just ask this simple question? What the heck is going on? Are we just greedy? Are we just that shallow and superficial? Are we, are we just stupid? Do we not know that we have a balance coming each month? What, what is going on? Can it be that actually the situation is worse than that? Can it be that it's not just about us being dumb or greedy or superficial? Can it be that there's actually a deep, intimate, spiritual reason why you and I seem rational or irrational, unreasonable when it comes to issue of money, resources, possessions, and treasures? Could it be that it has a deeper issue that deals with how we're hardwired that it actually gets to a deeper core issue that has to do more than just financial management seminars, that has to do more than just, here's a sermon on financial giving. It has to do with more than just getting more information, that there is a deep-rooted spiritual, dark spiritual issue that's at the root of why we spend money that we don't have to buy things that we don't need, to impress people that we don't even like. The bad news before the good news, the picture is actually bleaker than these numbers say. And the good news will come later. Uh, Then we're going to look at a couple passages today as we talk about breaking the power of money, possessions, and treasures. Open your Bibles with me first to Matthew chapter 6, okay? Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 1. These two passages, when you have time for two that we're going to read today, get to the heart of what I'm talking about and why Jesus emphasized money, resources, treasures so much. Verse 1, Matthew chapter 6. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in their synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men, I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And then the second passage we're going to look at is from the book of Mark, Mark chapter 10, which is almost a real-life illustration of the various principles that Jesus outlines in Matthew 6, the passage that we just read. It's a familiar passage of the rich young ruler. Listen. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandment. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, though, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, the children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This is God's word. Our culture says it's just money. The Bible says that money has powerful enslaving influences over your life. The three principles, we'll look at them and we'll ask some hard questions at the end. Here's the first principle that Jesus tells us from this passage, and that is this. Money is a master that demands allegiance and competition with Christ. Is that up there? Will you say that with me? Money is a master that demands allegiance and competition with Christ. The interesting thing about this passage, if you pay attention, is that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, does not contrast serving God or serving, what would you expect him to say? Satan. Think about it. He says, you cannot serve both God and Satan. And yet Jesus doesn't do that. He says, you cannot serve God and money. Jesus plainly says, money is something that can be served, something that can be followed, something that could have profound influence in your life and in my life. It could influence our hearts and in our souls, both for good and for bad. To which we have a hard time wrapping our brains around it. Because when we think of serving something, worshiping something, we have an image in our mind of a pile of cash and an altar built to it and someone bowing down to it. How do you wrap your brains around the fact that Jesus contrasts you could either serve God and give allegiance to him or you will serve money and give allegiance to it? Here it is. You might not have a pile of cash that you're bowing down to. But that pile of cash will ultimately reveal to you what it is that you have built an altar to that you are bowing down to. Money and possessions and treasures will ultimately reveal to you and your heart and your soul what ultimately is the idol, is the God, is the treasure of your life. Your idol, your God, my idol, my God will be that thing that we will find our heart most loving, adoring, and worshiping, resting in, finding our salvation in such a way that with our money, effortlessly, joyfully, without even a second thought, we will spend our money on. Malachi chapter 3 verse 10, passage we briefly looked at last week. Starting in verse 8, God says, will a man rob God? And if you're here last week, you need to just 
Study that word. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do, you rob, how, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, God says, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Bible teachers have used that passage to talk about tithing and how you can trust God, how you can be faithful to tithe because then God will provide for you. When you look at that passage and get that, you're totally missing it. The whole point of that passage that God is trying to get at is this. What is your storehouse? What is your treasury? What is your temple? Storehouses literally was the word treasury. The treasury was that place in the temple and it wasn't just Israelites, it was any pagan gods. They all, these temples had these treasuries or storehouses and in these storehouses or treasuries of these temples was where the gold was, where the silver was, where the jewels were, where what people gave was stored in. And out of the storehouse, out of the treasury, out of the, out of the, out, out of the treasury of the temple came the support of the idols, of the gods, the priests in that temple and the various other needs and ministries. Of that temple. And when God says, bring your tithes into my storehouse, into my temple, into my treasury, God is assuming that if you're not bringing his tithes into his temple, his treasury, his storehouse, you're pouring it in somewhere else. You're pouring it in somewhere else. Your treasures, your money, and your wealth is going into another storehouse, another treasury, listen to this, that supports another idol, deity of another god. And I just talk plainly with you here. If you find it incredibly hard to be generous, radically generous with your money to the poor, to the needs, but find it incredibly easy, effortless to spend your money on clothes, on shoes, your wardrobe is your real temple in service of another God. And that God might be the God of your appearance, physical beauty, outward looks, attractiveness, whatever that idol is, but your money and your treasures are serving into the storehouse and treasuries of your wardrobe in service of another idol, another God. If you find it incredibly difficult to be radically generous with your money, but effortless to spend money on a house or decorating that house, your house is your real temple. And your money is in another treasury, another storehouse. And you're saying to yourself, look at where I live. Look at the beautiful things I have in my home. And that is your real God. That is your real idol. That is where you find your significance, your security, rather than the knowledge of God. Fill in the blank. If you find it incredibly easy to effortlessly spend your money, you don't even think about it, charge it, here's a check for it, effortlessly, and you find that incredibly hard to be radically generous to God's causes, whatever it is that you are radically, easily spending your money on, draw a blank. Fill in that blank. That is your real God. That is your real idol. So here's a question. Where is your money and your treasures being stored in? In service of what God and what idol of our lives? And then there's some of us who sit there and go, Oh, yeah. Get him, Peter. I've worn the same thing for 10 years. (laughs) These shoes, fine. You tell him. You tell him. That's you. And yet, you're not generous. You're not radical with your money. You are storing it in your bank, in investments, in securities. Because you might not be radically, you might not be spending your money on on a wardrobe God or or, or a house God. But you're serving and servicing the security idol and the security God of your life. You're saying to yourself, I got to save, I got to invest, I got to do all these things. I don't have time to give. I don't have room to give because I got to store up for a rainy day. If something goes wrong and I I lose my job or another need comes up that I'm not aware of, I need to make sure that all my circumstances and situations are ordered. And in order for me to do that, I just can't afford to give. 
You're pouring your money into another storehouse, another treasure. And it might not be the wardrobe temple servicing the God of looks. It might not be the house temple servicing the God of whatever. But you are just as guilty as idol worship. Matter of fact, we'll see a little bit later. This is one of the worst idols of them all because there's very few idols like this that goes directly against the sovereign lordship. of God who says, I'm in control of your life. I don't believe it. I got to take care of me. But, but I'm in, I don't believe it. I got to take care of me. Do you see why Jesus compared and contrasted you will either serve God or you will serve money? Do you see why it's so profound that Jesus puts it in such stark terms, either worship God or worship money? And we see why Jesus talked about it so much. We see why money exerts such an enormous influence in our cultures and in our lives. We see why the solution is not just giving people more information. Listen, it's not just about realizing and learning that I need to give. It's about a fundamental condition of the human soul. of the human heart, a hardwiring of the way we're created, that we want to find worth, significance, value, acceptance in something. The parable of the rich young ruler is just an explanation of Exodus 23. Worship the Lord your God. What is God saying? God's saying there's no such thing as non-worshippers. We're all worshippers. Our hearts are created to worship something. Either you will worship God or worship some other idea or deity. It's not going to be a a, a non-worshipper. There's no third option. Our hearts were created to find worth, significance, and value in something. We're all going to do that every single second, every single day of our lives. What does idolatry have anything to do with money? Money fuels your idol worship. Money enables us to live without God. Money fuels and nurtures the idle roots in your life to go even deeper. Money enables you to say, God, I'd like to worship you, but this here really is the object of my worship. And this allows me to do that. Money is the fuel It's the gasoline and the fire of idol worship of our soul. And Jesus couldn't say it any other way but to say, you will either worship God or worship money. How are you doing? How am I doing? Is this hard? This is hard, isn't it? Because if you're sitting here this morning and you're willing to be genuine, sincere, and real, you're willing to just go, I'm willing to go to that hard place, then the first thing you have to ask is not, I have a lot, I have little. The first thing you've got to ask is, where am I easily, effortlessly spending money on? And furthermore, are you courageous enough to look deep within so that whatever is at the end of that trail, if it's not God, you're willing to ask the hard question for? That's why if our hearts were captured and controlled by the beauty of Christ, and I'll get to that, you will be set free to be radically generous. This isn't about more information. This isn't about going to the seminar. This is about a fundamental question of what anchors your soul. What anchors your soul? Can we get real specific about how money and idols work? Is that okay? Is that okay? Because you know what? The Bible is so cool. Jesus doesn't talk about wardrobe, you know, the obvious stuff, the house, the cars, you know, the stereo system. Jesus doesn't get, he doesn't get obvious. He gets actually underneath. And, and listen to Matthew 6 and the various idols and money Jesus mentions. It's so cool. Listen. In verse 2, he says, When you give to the needy, don't be honored by men. When you give to the needy, don't be honored by men. Here's an idol revealed by money. You ready? It's called a power idol. It's called an influence idol. In other words, some of us use money to fuel the idolatry of power, influence, of having to get our way when we want it, how we want it. 
Are you following so far? The sign that the status idol, status idol is controlling your life, you ready? You'll spend an inordinate, um, inordinate amount of money getting into certain neighborhoods. Status idol. You'll spend an enormous amount of money getting to that club or that association. Why? Here's another way that you know that the status idol is working in your life. It'll control you into taking careers that you really don't want to. You'll find yourself doing unfulfilling jobs. Why? So you can make a little more money and get into that income bracket and do it. Why do you want that job? Why do you work where you do? Why do you work the hours you do? Why do you want to leave that job and go to that job? Why do you want to leave your job and go to grad school? Why that grad school? Say it again, sister. Who said that? Amen, Sandra. You are following me. Are you all following me? See, you might be sitting there going, I've got $5 to my cat checking account. It doesn't matter. The status idol is powerfully at work in your life in such a way that you will put yourself in $60,000 debt to go to that grad school. How smart is that? I'm sorry, am I being too blunt? Why do you work at the place you do? Why do you work the job you do, the hours you do? I can go on and on and on, but you see what I'm saying. Second idol, verse 3. When you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I love this. Bible is so cool. Did you ever think about this? You know what idolatry this gets to? It's called the idolatry of self-approval. Why? Verse 2, he says, don't let other people know what you're doing. And then he says... Don't tell yourself what you're doing. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, don't tell yourself what you're doing with that money. Isn't that so cool? I was just like, oh, yes! So if you're like, I've heard that before, dude. What the heck is so powerful about that? Well, good for you. Here's how you know. It's self-approval idols working in your life. You ready? <laughs> There's two ways, actually. You can look at how much you've earned, how much you've saved, how well you're doing, and literally get morally proud and go, I'm so smart. Now, none of us says that, right? But here's how you know. You compare and contrast to other people and go, I've worked so much harder, so many more hours. It's so hard to get into that school. It's because I work so hard to get to know people, networking. I'm savvy. I'm intelligent. My left hand is telling my right hand all the things that I'm doing. Self-approval. Here's another. It's even worse. Self-approval. Another way that you know that the idol of self-approval idolatry is working in your life (laughs) is that you can look at the care of your families. You look at how generous you are, how much you give. Can you, how screwed up is this? The fact that you're radically generous could be the sign that the status idol is working in your life or the self-approval idol is working in your life. Why? It's a way for you to hear from somebody. You are so gracious. You're so generous. You're so kind. You're such a blessing to me, which is fine. But this idol is working in your life. If and when you don't get the response you like, you get irritated. You get annoyed. You kind of start getting real sensitive. Like, I can't. You know, I, I scratch myself when I get sensitive. You know, that's why I'm doing this. I'm like, I can't. I can't believe. I can't. I can't believe, did you not just, did you not, did you not realize I just bought you lunch? Not, I, I just gave you, I, I let you sleep over at my house? Like what? Because there are people in this world, oh yes, who you'll do stuff for, and they'll be like, see ya. <laughs> How do you know that this idol is working in your life? Listen to this. Can you be so much like Jesus that even if no utterance of thank you came to you, that you would be just as glad because you didn't do it for them? How screwed up is this? That this idol could be powerfully at work in some of us who are the most generous are in here. The most generous. But don't feel good if you're real stingy because you're going, at least I don't have that idol. (laughs) 
Are you incredibly sensitive when people don't respond to the way you want them to? Are you easily hurt, easily irritated? Are you doing it for them or are you doing it for yourself? Is this the ultimate form of self-love? That you give your time, your energy, and your resources? I think King David, as we studied last week, Enormously rich king had the right idea when he said, who am I to give as generously as, who am I to give as generously as this? Instead of saying, look who I am. Saying, my, my money doesn't make me somebody. Everything I have is a gift anyway. Uh, one more idol. We could go on and on and on, but one more idol because of time. It's verse 25 where Jesus says, so do not worry. And then he lists a number of things. What should we eat? What should we drink? Here's the third idol. It's called the idol of certainty or your security idol. Money can be used as a way of controlling your circumstances. And you know why I think this is the most important? Because it's this idol or idolatry that comes right after Jesus saying you will either serve God or serve money. Are you excessively worried? Are you excessively anxious about the fact that you don't have enough money? Does excessive worry and concern consume your life these days? You've got to ask the question, why? Is there a longing, perhaps, and a desire in your heart to want to control circumstances in such a way that if a rainy day were to come, if something were to happen, I can't afford to not be without the security. So the security idol is going to cause me to be stingy, to not give, because I need to save up and invest as much as I can. I'd love to give, God, but you know what? I just don't know what will happen. You know what Jesus says? All the churches we have in this earth, thieves will break in and steal. You know what that means? All the money you have in the world, it won't stop heartaches. All the money in your world can't stop unexpected illnesses like cancer in our family. All the money in the world you have can't stop some random stupid storm that comes through Chicago and knocks the power out and hot water from your house for three days. All the money in the world. So let me ask you a question. For those of you that are not being generous, because you reason, I need to make sure for a rainy day. Is it really about that or is it you are bowing down at that altar of security, God of your life? says no one can break in on God no one what do you know what that means that means God's love God's security God's significance for you is the only thing that will never change the only thing that can never be taken away you see our money is a master that demands allegiance and competition with Christ can we be honest how are you doing how am I doing how does a church like ours that's committed to justice doing It's more than just uh, trying to impress people that we don't even like. It's more than just uh, spending things that we don't really need. It's more than uh, spending money we don't have. Second principle that Jesus outlines that's powerful here is this. Now, some of you all are going to get all up in your grill because of this, but let me explain. The more money you have, the harder it is to make spiritual progress. How many agree with that? Oh, okay. Okay. Like 10% of you. Good. The more money you have, the harder it is to make spiritual progress. The reason why I say this is because there are folks who are incredibly wealthy uh, in this world, also in our church, who have a balanced perspective and and, and they realize that having a lot of money and being wealthy has nothing to do with but recognizing that there's power in this. What do I mean? Remember Luke chapter 12 verse 5, Jesus says, watch out for all kinds of greed. Why? Why didn't Jesus go around saying, watch out for all kinds of adultery? Because adultery isn't bad, adultery isn't sin. No, Jesus says, watch out for all kinds of greed, because greed, unlike adultery, other sins, you don't even know when you're committing it. It blinds you. Would it surprise you guys, in all of my years in ministry, I've never, ever had one person, one single person, walk into my office and say, I need some counseling. I need some spiritual direction. Is it pride? No. Is it anger? No. Is it lust? Yes, but that's another issue. No. Um, Is it, I have never ever had a person walk in my office and say, I need spiritual direction because I am too greedy. 
I'm just racked with guilt because I'm just so materialistic. Ever. You know why? Because we're not materialistic, we're not greedy, no. None of us thinks it's our issue. We don't think we have a problem. You know what the danger of that is, though? And the rich young ruler story illustrates this. The power of money, and the words why it's so dangerous for spiritual progress, it blinds you for your need for Jesus and what he has to offer. It blinds you of your need spiritually. This story of the rich young ruler cannot be a better example of somebody who clearly needs the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, and yet, because of his wealth, is so blinded to that need for his grace and his mercy, he's willing to drop everything and walk away from Jesus. Can we talk plainly again? How does money blind us? And how does money make it harder for us to make spiritual progress? Here's at least three reasons. One, money makes us physically secure, and oftentimes that obscures our moment-by-moment dependence on God's protection and sustenance. Money makes us physically secure, and it blinds us. Look, how many of you have been on missions? Overseas missions. Do you know why you go on missions, you come back, you're all like, oh, spiritually on fire. God has done an amazing thing. Do you know why? It's very simple. For the first time in your life, you were exposed to circumstances where physically you realize you need God. And yet, here, blinds you of your need. Can any of us live physically, moment by moment, without God? And yet, we think we can. Why? We have the money to do it. Secondly, it makes you relationally self-sufficient. Money does. And so there is one less need for others. Why do you need community? Why do you need people? You can take care of it yourself. You could pay for it. You could hire relationally self-sufficient, and you miss out on the aspect of community. Here's another way, though. It makes you relationally sufficient. It makes you less accountable to others. You could build up huge walls, huge barriers, literally and figuratively, and say, I'm insulated. I've got the money. I'm taking care of me. I don't need to be accountable to anybody. You know what's powerful? Can I just share something with you guys? This is side-related, you know? Uh, uh, Mimi Co here, a couple weeks ago or three, four weeks ago, I, sh- I talked about how what would it look like if we were a church community where we were so interdependent that not only were we accountable to each other about issues like sexuality, about lust and about those kinds of things, but we were accountable with our finances. What if we actually became a community where our finances are open to the accountability of the people around us? Can you imagine? Uh, that's what the Bible gets at. Tell somebody what's on my checking account. Tell somebody what I spent my credit card on. Are you kidding me? Of course, it makes perfect sense in America. But what if we're a radical biblical community that said, "Um, okay, here's my monthly credit card statement. Oh, come on. You didn't need that. I know. I stink. (laughs) Can we be that radical? I don't know. I'm just throwing this out. Can we be that kind of a radical community? We're literally, we were accountable to that way. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. It will radically transform us. It will radically transform us. But the third way in which money makes it hard for spiritual progress is very simple and yet incredibly hard to grasp. That is, there's nothing or fewer things like money that makes us morally proud and morally function according to sort of a work righteousness mentality. Antithesis of the gospel. What do I mean? There's nothing like money that makes us say, I earned it, I worked for it, I studied hard, I went to that grad school, I made time to connect with that person, network here, and did that. And so what I have is a result of, and I talked about this last week, look, when I approach spiritually, it works righteousness. Like, God, I need to earn your approval, I need to earn your acceptance, I need to earn, 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 earn. Every single time, we're going to hit a ceiling in our spiritual lives because it's not, it doesn't function that way, our relationship with God. You know that, I know that. If we have that kind of insecurity, like what I do somehow relates to what you do towards me, we cannot ever break through on this ceiling of our spiritual lives with God. We're always going to feel condemned, always insecure, always unsure of where we stand. Now, why do we change our mentality when it comes to our resources and finances? What makes us think forgiveness and eternity? All about you. But when it comes to my stuff, it's all about me. 
Does that make sense? That's why I say the, lit, the litmus test on whether we are functioning from the engine of the gospel, the litmus test on whether we are functioning from the anchor of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is, from A to Z, I am radically and graciously saved by the mercy and grace of God. And everything that I have, God, is a gift, is a gift, is a gift, is a gift. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Listen, works righteousness, it doesn't work getting into the kingdom. It also doesn't work growing in it either. It doesn't. As long as you and I approach God from this perspective of God, I've earned and I've... God says, everything that you have is a gift. Do you see it? Do you see it? You know what the truth we need to learn is? And this is going to seem so countercultural. Do you know how you can be radically free from the sin of idolatry? You got to be radically generous. <laughs> you want the hold of that idolatry to be broken in your life? The best thing to do is to be radically generous. Jesus tells the rich young ruler, give everything that you have and then come follow me. Now, some Christians have looked at that and said, that means we have to sell. No, Jesus was getting at who is the Lord of your stuff? Whether you give 50%, 10%, 15%, whatever, who is the Lord of your stuff? Who rules over it all? And until he came to the realization that everything that he has, he could radically give for the sake of Christ, the power of money is never going to be broken in his life in the same way unless you and I are willing to be radically generous with our stuff. We'll never be free. We'll never be truly free. You want to know how you can be for God? And not be bound by acceptance, approval, insecurity, uh, the idols of power, status, the idols of self-approval, the idols of circumstances. God says, be radically generous. How else do you explain Acts 20, 25? It is more blessed to give than to receive. It's a blessing to give. Because it's about our joy. Let me end with this, okay? If I ended here, uh, many of us would walk out and feel either guilty or hopeless or helpless or maybe affirmed. Some of us are like, I'm on the right track. This is great. And some of us may be confused about exactly how do I go about doing that. Well, I'm going to talk more about this next week, more tangible, practical. But let me, let me, you know where the ultimate motivation is to come from? Can you guys all look up here? I'm almost done. Let me just because you can't miss this. You know where the ultimate motivation has come from? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You and I could all relate to this reality that we would do anything for our treasure. We would do anything to maintain it, keep it, secure it, spend. It's our status, it's our career, it's our children, it's him, it's her, whatever. We would do anything for our treasure. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross tells us that Jesus Christ died for us. Did you ever think about it this way? Why? Did you ever think about the fact that the reason why Jesus is dead is because you and I were his treasure? Here's the difference. All the treasures in the world say, you die for me. You die for it. You die for this. Jesus Christ is the only treasure in the world that came and said, I will die for you. I will give everything for you. Do you know where the motivation comes to be radically generous? It's not sitting down with the calculator going, okay, what is 10%? It's sitting down with the cross of Jesus. is sitting down at the cross of Jesus and saying, I was your treasure. Me, God, me, broken, messed up me. I was your treasure. And instead of like all the other treasures, you come in and saying, then die for me, spend for me, work for me. You came and laid down your life for me. And friends, only then, only then will your heart, look, I can stand up here, do a 10-week series, but only then when you sit down and the cross of Jesus Christ and the fact that you are his treasure, 
Only when that melts your heart, only when that happens, money will no longer be your significance. Money will just be money. Only when your heart is melted by the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ will you not find your significance in what your money can do. But you'll find it in the only place that really matters. God, I just uh, pray right now for every single person here. Um, Lord, this is hard. It's tough. It's a... Uh, hmm. You guys, as we, as we just spend a moment praying, I, I just, I'm feeling led by God to do this. We, will you just sit there and, 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 and be courageous enough to ask the hard question of what, what is my true God? What is my true idol? Oh, sure, I can say that I'm a Christian. Oh, sure, I can say that I do all this stuff. But at the end of the day, At the end of the day, where are all my treasures being stored? And what treasure, in what temple is everything that I have just easily, effortlessly flowing into? And friend, will you have enough courage that as the Holy Spirit speaks to you and perhaps reminds you and shows you that you would, as Scripture says, truly and genuinely repent. That is, begin at the place of saying, God, I long to worship the one true God, you. I desire to find my acceptance, my worth, everything that I have there. Jesus, you are my King. Pray with me. God, we thank you. We praise you and worship you, God, for your generosity to us and towards us, God, that enables us to be radically generous, God, to your causes. God, in this hard place, in our hard lives, we pray and ask that you would open our eyes to see any and all idols in our lives, God, that would have us bound and radically set us free so that our allegiance, our loyalties, our affections, our all, our entire lives can be given towards you for the radical living out of it in the world out there, for that is what you have called us to do and be. Make us bold and courageous people for you, God. Make us fearless people for you who will radically love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our minds and souls, and will love our neighbors as ourselves. Fill us with such radical love. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, Amen. Have a great week, you guys. We'll see you back here next Sunday as we continue our journey. Have a great week.